Welcome to the Fremantle Press Podcast. My name is Rebecca Hickey and today I'm talking to Julia Lawrenson about her middle grade novel, Maddie in the Middle. We'll be chatting about doing the wrong thing for the right reason, the complexity of friendship and how you come to be a successful writer with over a dozen books to your name. We'll also be joined by special guest author AJ Betts to give her tips on bringing books to life through author talks and performance, which is our theme for today's podcast. Stay tuned to the very end so you can hear Julia reading from Maddie in the Middle and being put through a pop quiz on a secret subject that features in her book. Don't forget, if you like today's podcast, then you can subscribe through iTunes, Google Play or where you get your favourite podcasts. Julia has written more than a dozen books for children and young adults, many of them award-winning. Despite leaving school at 15, she has a PhD in writing and a Bachelor of Laws with distinction. Her books are about friendship, family and the occasional Jack Russell. Julia, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Rebecca. All right, Julia, could you start by telling us what is Maddie in the Middle about? Maddie in the Middle is about a girl, the eponymous Maddie, who finds herself at the beginning of year six and she's a bit lost in herself and her best friend Katie's going off and doing fantastic things. She's head counsellor and she just isn't quite sure what to do. Enter mysterious new girl Samara. Mysterious. (laughs) (laughs) And then the rest of the book is really about what happens when she becomes friends with Samara because Samara has a secret of her own. Yes, absolutely. And um, I hope I'm not giving too much away here, but one of those little secrets is shoplifting. Mm. So I'd love to know, why did you decide to write about shoplifting? When I was a kid, shoplifting was a real rite of passage. It was something you were dared to do by older kids, usually in about that age of primary school, sometimes Mm. into high school as well. And I thought it had gone the way of the dinosaurs with, you know, security cameras and things like that. Mm. But my friend's daughter, who was about 11 at the time, was caught shoplifting Mm. and much to her mother's surprise and everybody else's. And then I found that it's actually something that still happens and it's still a bit of a rite of passage for groups of girls usually. Mm. And so I wanted to explore somebody doing something like that, but for a particular reason, not just a dare, but something that was a bit deeper than that. Yeah. um, Well, I'm actually, you've talked about there's something deeper there. Um, and that alludes to there's a really lovely blurb on the back of your book where it says, does doing the wrong thing for the right reason ever make the wrong thing right? <laughs> I'd love to know, do you think Maddie did the right thing? No, she didn't do the right thing. And mm. I'd, I'd hasten to add that this is not a manual of for, you know, how Absolutely. to shoplift or a justification for, for doing it. Yeah. But I think it makes sense to look at what she did and the reasons why she did yeah. it, to understand why people do those kinds of things, particularly when they're very out of character. Mm. So, no, she didn't do the right thing, but her intentions were good. Of course, that doesn't mean anything in the end. She did the wrong thing. But I think it's something that people are confronted with a lot Mm. in their lives, that they, for various reasons, have temptations put in their way or are asked to do something, but that something is justified. Oh, it's okay because such and such, or don't worry about that, it's okay because of this yeah. reason or that reason. Mm. Yeah, and I think that's that's wonderful to explore like, um, and to encourage for your readers. You know, th- there are often reasons behind why people do things. It doesn't justify it, but it's good for us to kind of figure out, well, what's going on here? Why is this char- this, this, this young girl who um, would never do something like this, why has she actually done that? So I am going to jump right in now to a pop quiz. Oh. And it is going to be about... Chocolate. So I want to test your chocolate, your knowledge of chocolate bars. Okay. Okay. You look a bit scared. I'm I'm a little, I'm a little bit scared, but I'm going with it. All right. Excellent. So the Fremantle Press team have compiled a list of chocolate bars from real life and from fiction. So I would like to see if you can spot the real ones. Okay. All right. So true or false, are the following real life chocolate bars, um, are they actual real or fiction? So nutrageous. 
fiction. Uh, no, believe it or not, it is an actual chocolate bar. You oh, can get them no. in the US, the UK and Ireland. I'm oh, going to no. presume they have nuts in them. <laughs> <laughs> okay, next one, Wonder Bar. I'm going to say fiction because it sounds like something else from the 80s. Okay. Um, no, it is real. Um Peanut butter, rice crips, caramel, all yummy things, oh. apparently from Canada and Germany, and um, it's German for wonderful. Huh. So, yeah. Uh, the Pedro. I'm going to have to say it's a true thing because I have no idea okay. and my, my fail rate is quite high at this point. Your fail rate's still quite high. Oh, no! <laughs> um, Pedro is a lead character in the book Like Water for Chocolate. Okay. Okay, the next one is The Hollow Chocolate Bunnies of the Apocalypse. I would like them to be true. Tell me they are. Um, I'm really sorry they're not. Oh, no. But I think that would be great at, at, at Easter, you know. I'd, I'd buy a hollow chocolate bunny of the apocalypse. Absolutely. I think chocolate makers out there should take that. Yeah. It, it's actually a Robert Rankin crime fantasy novel. <laughs> <laughs> okay, next one, whatchamacallit. Again, I would buy it. Mm. Well, you'd be right too because they're available in the US. Right. <laughs> so I'm, isn't that I'm cool? Go- I'm going there to buy them now. Excellent. Um, what's, what's my rate? One out of five? I'd say that, yeah. <laughs> um, but I think you'll get the next one. All right. Snickers. Well, of course. Yes, yes. absolutely. And apparently it's named after a favourite horse that belonged to the Mars family. Really? Yeah. I did I not know that. No, it's pretty cool. Hmm. Now, a butter chocolate batch. I'm going to go with yes. Um, unfortunately not. Um, it's just inspired by the actor Benedict Cumberbatch because I love a good pun. <laughs> okay, a, the next one is, yeah, sorry, I have to get a pun in there. Okay. My, my, my goal for this whole podcast series is to get a pun into every um, episode. Okay. So listeners should stay tuned and see if I can manage to do that. Okay, the next one, a Tato. Okay, yes. Okay, yes, you're right. And it's a chocolate bar from Ireland that is cheese and onion chip flavoured. Oh, wow. Which I actually think would be nice because I like, you know, salty kind of sweet things, but yeah. you're not looking convinced. Well, I don't know. I am a fan of salted caramel. Mm, so, so. I'll, look, I'd, I'd give it a go. Yeah. Mm. Um, a Booba Luba. Yes. Yes, yeah, spot on. It's um, apparently strawberry and marshmallow bar from Mexico. <laughs> Now, you've only got two more left. The next one is the Very Chocolate Caterpillar. I'm going to say no. Yeah, you're spot on. Um, <laughs> kind of inspired by my endless readings of the Very Hungry Caterpillar to my son. Um, and I can assure you, chocolate cake is just one of the many things our caterpillar enjoys. <laughs> okay, the last one is Fudge Flies. I- I'm going with no. I'm going to give it to you. It is a trick question because it's a chocolate from Harry Potter, but believe it or not, you can actually buy them. So we've obviously, we talked about the chocolate, the shoplifting, but really I think your book is about friendship. Maddie is determined to make a new friend, be a good friend, but she also struggles when the nature of an old friendship changes. I was really struck by something she said, and I wrote it down. She said, I think about Samara. Things aren't difficult for her, with her. Samara makes me feel better about myself. Shouldn't friends do that, make each other feel better instead of uneasy and uncomfortable? So when I read this, I thought, mm, but, but friendship isn't always easy. What would you like readers to learn about the nature of friendship? I would like them to think about the fact that sometimes you've got to make a judgment call. Yeah. So sometimes a friend might make you feel uneasy and uncomfortable because maybe they're reflecting something back at you that you're not yeah. happy about. Or sometimes it's because you're both changing and you need to find a way to connect to each other mm. again. But sometimes it can be because that friendship has run its course. Yeah. And hopefully as people get older, they can tell the difference between those states. Mm. But, yeah, sometimes friendship isn't easy, but you need to learn how to work through those difficulties and those kind of friction points. Yeah. And I I think think that's a good point too, that sometimes a friendship will just evolve or as you change, it starts to change. And sometimes, as you say, friendships run their course. And I think um, working with kids at a primary school, sometimes it's hard for them to realise, you know what, maybe this friendship is, you know, maybe I've grown too much or we've changed too much as people. Um, I think that's a really good thing for people, especially kids, to think about. Like it's not the end of the world if a friendship's, you know, not necessarily... um, still what it was, it can either change or it can evolve and you can kind of 
you know, make new friends as well. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one thing I really liked about your book, that it kind of explored that, um, you know, the, the complexities of friendship. Another thing I, I really liked was looking at um, your book made me think about this kind of um, tension between the popular and the unpopular kids um, in contemporary children's literature. We kind of, I realise we rarely read books that feature kind of the popular, pretty or high-achieving kid as the main character. Rather, a lot of our protagonists are kind of nerds, underdogs, <laughs> outcasts, or as Maddie describes herself, the ordinary kid. Um, why do you think these kids tend to feature so much in literature for children? Well, I think probably that most writers are those ones. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There's probably I was wondering exceptions. that too, yeah. There's probably a few exceptions to those. But also I think that all all fiction requires a character to go through something. And mm. if you're already the cool kid where stuff's all sorted out, even though we all know that the cool kids don't have everything sorted out, but yes. they have the appearance of it. Mm. So I think it's much easier to narrate stories from the point of view of the kid who's, you know, not quite all right or is struggling mm. or uh, or isn't aware of themselves or, or something like that. So... Mm. Uh, they make for more interesting characters, I think. And as I was reading your book, I was looking at, you know, the the so-called popular girls uh, and it seemed like even they probably didn't seem to always fit in. Like there seemed to be, and it made me really think about, I think probably kids, even maybe the popular ones or the ones who may look like they've got everything sorted, perhaps they actually don't feel that way. Mm. And that's what also I was wondering if, if, one of the reasons our a lot of our protagonists tend to be the outcasts or is because most kids feel like that what what do you think yeah quite quite possibly mm. i also think that kids who like reading a lot are usually searching for something yeah. as well and so they're looking in their characters mm. for something that's going to help them on their way yeah. A bit. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm friends with a lot of people that I went to primary school and high school with. Mm. And it's really interesting as adults talking about what our perceptions of each other was because yeah. it's really different yeah. to the way that we perceived ourselves. And having having those talks later on when there's nothing at stake is really very interesting. Mm. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So I have a weird confession. My favourite character is Brooke, which I know seems really, really odd because she's such a minor character. But the reason I like her so much is because she's not actually Maddie's friend, but she's incredibly kind. With each interaction, she kind of um, just checks if Maddie's okay. When Maddie's feeling isolated, she invites her to sit with her friends, even though they're not, again, they're not friends. And I think there's just so much to learn here. I'd love you to tell me what would you like readers to kind of learn from these minor characters like Brooke? I, I'm glad you picked that up because mm. I am I was very fond of her as well. Yeah. And, again, this goes back to, you know, going to school reunion-y things or talking to people who I hadn't seen for, you know, 20 years since yeah. high school and reflecting on the fact that the people that I thought I should be friends with mm. weren't always the people that... I actually should have been friends with, you yeah. know, like I, I realised I missed out on a lot of really good friendships because I was looking for something in particular. Yeah. And actually that wasn't necessarily what was good mm. for me and there were some really interesting people that I went to school with um, because we were a huge uh, cohort when I went yeah. through and so there were a lot of people that I didn't have um, deep and meaningfuls yeah. with that now I'm just like why did we why did we not connect at high school yeah and it, it's a source of bit of a bit of regret so Brooke's that kind of character she's kind of person that actually Maddie would probably do well to you know not necessarily be best friends but actually but, invest a bit in that friendship yeah it mm. really made me think reflect on my own experience at high school as well um because I like I specifically remember there was a boy that was really cool. Like I, I really got on with him well, but then I realised the cool kids thought he was a nerd. And so I started to be mean to him. And I never 
became a friend of his. But And I remember him saying to me, like, you know, oh, I thought we were friends. And I'm like, no, nah, I'm not friends with you. And it made me, look, looking at Brooke, and I thought, you know, I do really regret that. And I hope that kids will read your book and think, you know, it doesn't, I don't actually need to be friends with the people that I think I need to, I just need to be friends with people who I connect to. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I did really like that. And I also, another thing it reminded me of was, um, again, um, you know, um, I'm a library officer at a, a primary school and I've seen so many of those kids that always reach out to other kids. They're not friends, but they reach out. And I hope that your book will encourage other kids to do that. So, I hope so. Yeah. I really do. I, yeah, I think that that really did come through, even though she's a minor character. Um, that's another, that's what I liked about your book. There were so many little threads in there that kids can pick up on and relate to. So, yeah, it was great. I really enjoyed that part. Yeah, I hope um, they do. So I I'm hope so they pleased that you didn't think it was odd that I really gravitated towards Brooke. No, no, I was pleased that that, um, that was something that you thought about because yeah. I certainly thought about it when I was writing it. Yeah. Okay, now I would love to talk to you about how you actually wrote Maddie in the Middle. Um so you, reading your um, biography, you have written over a dozen books, which I think is remarkable. <laughs> um, I would love to know about your process. How do you actually write? Well, I work full time. So any writing I oh do is goodness. usually really, really early in the morning. Wow. Um, so, and usually I'm lucky if I've got half an hour. Um, wow. So, so I, I write little and often. <laughs> Yeah. And so when I need to do big edits, it has to be when I'm on holidays or something like that. So mm. the writing is very slow, but um, for, and usually it just starts with an idea that I'm interested in or a character mm. who comes to me or or in this one, that, that moral question about doing the right thing really uh, interested me. And also in the process of doing this when I was writing it I was finishing my law degree and so mm. I was doing some um, practical work in criminal law so I was spending Great. some time in the uh, magistrates court and seeing all these people going through on yeah. a lot of petty crime and often um, people had long petty criminal records and then um, doing some other stuff on some more major cases, mm. all the people that end up in jail, mm. by and large, with very few exceptions, have long histories of petty, kind of petty crime that kind of increases in yeah. magnitude. So it made me think about where those first decisions are and as I've... I don't mean to, like, there's a lot of other things that go into, you know, somebody becoming um, a, a career criminal or to go down that, that path. Like, there's usually great, you know, social dysfunction mm. and um, disadvantage and all those kinds of things. So yeah. I'm not meaning to minimise those. Mm. But at some point, everybody made a decision, if they were capable of doing it, yeah. of, right, I, I'm crossing this line. Mm. And and um and being prepared to cross the line because once you've crossed it one time, it's easy to keep going. I think. Well, and and that's you know you're talking about the the crossing of a line. I wonder when it's children. So you know, someone of Maddie's age, does it is it harder to kind of you know make an informed decision? You know, you think about adults committing mm. crimes that they probably know the con they they really do understand the consequences. What about children like? Is that where perhaps things like literature might come into play or? I I think that most kids do have a sense of right and wrong yeah. in whatever, you know, even in the most dysfunctional families, kids, kids will have an instinctive sense of what's right and what's wrong, apart from your true psychopaths and sociopaths, you know, yeah. putting them aside. Yeah. Um, and so I, I do think that they are capable, not to the degree that adults mm. are, um, but they know when they shouldn't be doing something by and large. Yeah, and I think Maddie definitely knows that what she's doing is not Abs the right thing. Absolutely she does. Yeah. And she has that, that battle with herself and I think that kind of cognitive dissonance between I shouldn't be doing this but I'm doing it to help a friend, you know, that doesn't sit very well with her and I mm. think... It's those kind of uncomfortable feelings that I think kids 
need to learn to be aware of in themselves. Yeah. If you're having that uncomfortable feeling, it means you need to work something out. And I think that's what literature can do. I think books mm. can give kids a way of working through that without having to do it. Yeah. You know, no kid who finishes Maddie in the Middle will think, oh, shoplifting's a great thing to do. They're just not going to. <laughs> no, especially um, as we get towards the end of the book and we start to see some real consequences. Mm-hmm. Um, you talked about your experience um, finishing your law degree, um, working in the magistrate court. Um, the, the courtroom scenes really did feel very authentic. I was wondering if you had experience or if you did research. Um, as well as your experience, what research did you actually do in writing your book? I did actually go and sit in on in the children's court um, wow. for a day and I talked to um, a children's court lawyer mm-hmm. um, at some length who uh, was a colleague from when I was doing my practical training. Yeah. And it was really because I'd spent quite a bit of time in the magistrate's court, so it was really interesting seeing the children's court and the way that it makes decisions is quite different. So mm-hmm. it has that... Um, there's there's not that punitive sense of we must punish in the same way, yeah. although obviously there's a, there's a bit of that. But kids are really given chances and support um, to to try and turn them around and to get them away from the criminal justice system mm. because those magistrates in the children's court know what's going to happen. So if if those yeah. kids get to eighteen and they're still getting in trouble it's very likely they're going to keep on going and it's better for them and it's better for everybody if they can get off that path if it's possible. Mm. Um, I I did really like those sections because, again, they did feel so authentic Um, and I felt like I I was learning a lot. I imagine kids reading this would learn a lot. Um, I really do love, you know, books that are very well researched and kind of also based on an, an author has drawn on their life experience I think we often mistakenly think of things like research as something that we do for an assignment, an essay, or a book of non-fiction. How do you think research can make fiction better? I think it's really important if you're looking at virtually any topic mm. um, to know what you're talking about. I mean, it's obvious with things like historical research, you need yeah. to get your facts right because yes. otherwise anybody reading it who knows about that subject mm. knows that it's not right. Um, the the same thing with, um, I guess, dealing with, you know, illnesses or or whatever. Um, yeah. We'll be talking about Amanda Betts in a bit. And, yeah. you know, her book, Zach and Mia, um, I've heard people who've grown up with um, medical conditions say this has been the only book that actually is true to our experience because Amanda's worked in a hospital, so she knows um, what it's like for those kids. So I think it's really important if you're writing about something to immerse yourself in mm. it and to, to know every angle you possibly can know about it. Yeah, I, com- I completely agree. And Though I do wonder if um, you only write half an hour in the mornings before you go to your full-time job, how do you find time to do that research? Because like I did a lot of research for my book and sometimes it would take months, months and months and months. So how do you manage that? Well, I've got three weeks leave at Christmas and I'm going to be spending a lot of it in the State Library. because um, It's a nice place to be. (laughs) Because the book I'm writing is set in 1979 and I absolutely have to go. And I've I've looked at some of the newspapers and Mm. things like that, but I've got to go and do some immersive um, work in the library and there's no shortcut. To it, you just have to do it. Do so I'm, I'm, I'm drafting it, kind of leaving spaces for the things that I know need to go in. Mm. You know, things like the what the weather was like, and yeah. you know, I know it sounds trivial, but mm. um, you need to get those things right because some of them are now easy to find out. You know, mm. <laughs> um, and and if if they're not available online now, they will be soon. So mm. you you got to get it right. Yeah, I um, had that experience when I had my, my mum reading my book and there's a, there was a scene where um, someone was putting on sunscreen but it was in like the 60s or something and she's like, no, 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 <laughs> we were not doing that in the 60s. Um, Zinc cream on your nose. Yeah, exactly, you know, <laughs> um, or even um, a point at which we went from um, 
like the pound to the dollar mm-hmm. and the conversion rate. Like I had to get that right, yeah. you know. The 14th of February, 1966. <laughs> there you yeah. go. I'm, I'm so <laughs> impressed. Um, see, you, if, you re- if you read my book, you'll, you'll, uh, hopefully you won't pick it up and go, oh, she got something wrong here. <laughs> I, I, think that, I think that's a good point though. Like not only does it take your reader out, if they know that you've made a mistake, that is going to rip them out of the, that kind of immersive mm-hmm. world. But you mentioned... Um, Amanda Betts um, and her book and that people were saying that it was the only way, only book that they've ever read that kind of related to their experience. That kind of makes me really sad that's, that, that, that some people may not, may see themselves in books but may be misrepresented. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, yeah, I think that's a really good message for, for um, writers to hear. Um, we, we have been talking about Amanda Betts or AJ Betts as she is known Um I would love to know, I can see it sitting over there. What are you reading at the moment? Okay, well, I'm, I've, I've, I have two books in my hand. I have Hive and I have Rogue, which um, are the two books in a duology, which I didn't even know was a word. But no, neither did I. Awesome. <laughs> so, um, so Hive was the first book and that came out last year and it's about a girl called Hayley who's living in an underground world and... Um, and the world is very rigid, and you don't realise that it's uh, that it's under the sea. Oh wow! When, and I'm, it's not a spoiler, sure. But um, but there, so there's this whole community of people down there, and they live in a very um, very structured world where everything is explained. Um, and then Haley sees a drip coming from the roof, and wow. she wonders, and her wondering leads her into, at the end of Hive, escaping from this world. Mm. And Rogue, which came out this year, is what happens when Haley escapes and where she ends up. It's one of those books where I, I really can't tell you anything sure. about it because it's going to be a spoiler. Yeah. Um, but suffice to say, it is an absolute um, um edge of your chair reading experience it's hive is is a fantastic read but it's really setting you up for rogue which is just a masterpiece and i was reading it having absolutely no idea where it was going um and it also features a a a wonderful love interest called will um and just the most beautifully described um i'm not sure if dystopian's quite the right world but um a a future where things are similar but different to the way that they are now but it also has the most uplifting and optimistic ending so um i would highly recommend these two books it's really hard because we have so many great west australian authors um and so it's really hard to pick but i i would have to it's it's hard to go past rogue awesome as a great YA book for this year. Awesome. Well, you've created a great segue for me um, by mentioning Amanda Betts. Now I think is the perfect time for our new segment, Phone a Friend. (laughs) Uh, It's a chance for us to ask experienced authors and industry professionals to share some behind-the-scenes info about the publishing world. So our theme today is bringing books to life through author talks and performance. Now, this is something that's really fascinating for me as a primary school library officer, the idea of being the author that goes into the school is kind of terrifying to me, <laughs> like absolutely terrifying. So I'm hoping to get some good tips. You've you've done quite a few author talks in your time, haven't Certainly you, Julia? Have, yes. Awesome. <laughs> well, I'm going to I'm going to try and get some inf- um, tips from you as well. But first, um, let's hear from an author who is a renowned performer, popular with kids and adults, so we can get their perspective too. So um, AJ Betts couldn't make it today, but she has left us a voicemail instead. Hi, uh, thanks for having me on the podcast. My name is AJ Beth and I'm looking forward to talking about um, yeah, some ideas around speaking and um, writing for young people. In terms of uh, doing public events, um, particularly at schools, I think the main benefit really is for the, the schools and the students. Um, and that's why I do it. Uh, I go to so many schools where lots of the students haven't seen an author before um, and that's a real, I find that a real privilege um, to be able to connect with someone in that way and um, there's a saying that you can't 
see what you can't see and and they if they're not seeing someone who's living a creative life and um, doing something a bit different when, then how will they have the, the courage to do the same um, so it's, I speak to teenagers because that's who I write for and they might not really show it during events that they're in, really interested in you might not think that you're changing someone's life but don't be fooled you might hear back from the teacher later you might get an email the following day um or it might be months later that you actually hear back that like someone's niece or nephew or the young person themselves um just really enjoyed the talk and got a lot out of it so just believe that you are connecting with people and i find this really rewarding um yeah for, so the benefit for me well there is the monetary um remuneration of course um but, but to be honest i by the time you do all your planning and you go there and all that invoicing and the communication, I don't think it's the greatest way of making a, a living. Um, the real benefit for me is just connecting with young people, um, finding new readers, learning from them as well, what excites them about what I say and, and my stories. Um, yeah, and I do hope that in the long run that the students might become interested in my books and check them out as a result. It's hard to judge it at the time, but you just go in and think, if I do a good job, I you never know um, what might happen as a result. So when it comes to selling books, I personally never sell books at school events. Um, that's just not my goal. I'm, when I'm at a school, my motivation is to speak about creativity uh, with the hope of engaging and inspiring and exciting young people. And I think if I went in there with like books, uh, boxes of books and then stood around waiting for someone to come by, it just would feel tacky and gross and um, it's just a misalignment with, with what I'm hoping to do. And look, I'm, I'm, other authors do it um, and they do it well and, and that's great. Um, and I'm sure I'm doing myself a disservice in terms of sales, but I just don't like that idea of being that salesperson um, and standing around awkwardly. Maybe that's it. I don't want to be embarrassed with stacks of books and have no one buy them. But um, at bookstore or library events, sometimes there is a bookseller involved. Uh, but to be honest, you don't sell many then either. So I did an event not long ago at a library and I think I sold maybe 10. Um, but that's, again, that's not the goal um, of, of these events. It's about connecting, talking about story. Um, yeah, and hopefully inspiring young people. So when I do sell books at um, at events is really at the school festival. So the big ones like here in Perth, Perth Writers Festival, Brisbane Writers Festival, these are writers festivals that have a really strong schools program attached and it's really well organised, a big bookseller. It's organised as signing um, times and the students come with a credit card or money. Yeah, I sell a lot of books then, which, which is great um, and, and everyone signed up for that, so that's fine. But yeah, with events, I just figure in general... Um, I have this long-term approach. I might speak to someone and maybe six months later they see the book in, the, in a bookstore and then they get it. So I, I just think that um, it's not an immediate um, sales outcome that I'm looking for, but a, but a longer-term, hopefully, uh, yeah, a longer-term effect. Now, every author will come across the event, um, and don't, do not be alarmed, to come across the event where you might get three people showing up, uh, four people, maybe... You know, I, I did a lot of events recently in over east, and especially in the regional areas, it's really hard to get people in. Also, if you're writing for a young adult audience, as I am, it's hard to get teenagers in. They look, I'm not making excuses for them, but they've got things to do, and they don't want to turn up on their own and be embarrassed. Um, and also, adults think, "Oh, is it for me?" And it can be. It can be kind of unsure, uh, uncertainty around who the event's for. So do not take it personally when hardly anyone turns up. It happens to everybody. Um, so what I've had to do is just lower my expectations. Um, and if more than 10 people show up, I'm happy. <laughs> I'm excited. So what you do in those situations, don't panic. What you, what you do is adjust the talk. You're not clearly speaking to 100 people. 
certainly not a thousand people. Um, and what I do is I start with something like this. Um, well, this is a really lovely sized group, which means that we can be more personal and intimate and make it more of a conversation. So rather than just talking at them, I really involve, say, the, the handful of people, the dozen or so people. Um, and it becomes really special. And I think, yeah, you just cater for that crowd and don't take it personally. We all experience it. Um, in terms of payment, when it comes to doing public events, bookstore events are freebies. I, I never get paid and I never expect to be paid. I mean, bookstores, as it is, they're paying their staff. It, there's a lot of expense incurred already. Some bookstores might offer you a voucher for a book or even a free coffee. Um, take what you can get, but expect nothing. <laughs> um to be honest, and when I go in, when I do a bookstore event, I actually lose money because I always buy at least one book from the bookstore in order to support them and thank them. So you're doing it in good faith. Um, when it comes to schools, generally you ask for payment and expect to get paid. There is funding allocated for this unless there are special circumstances and schools can contact you and you can negotiate that yourself. And I've certainly done some freebies for schools. Um, but generally, I do have a set fee. Um, libraries, I'm generally not paid unless they approach me. Um, but yeah, I, I go into libraries not expecting payment. When it comes to festivals, definitely be expected to be paid for events, um, for a panel or a solo session. However, there are ex exceptions, such as small festivals or that are just starting out. Um, another exception is the Awkward Writers Festival, which does not pay. However, they pay your flights and accommodation and put you up and treat you like a princess or a prince. And, um, yeah, so that's, that's a wonderful form of payment as well. Um, and and uh, I'm going to come back to what I said earlier. I don't speak mostly with the intention of sales or intention of making money. Um, sometimes I do things for charity as well because I'm in a privileged position where people, I have things to say and people who want to hear them and if I can use that voice for good and help raise funds, then I will definitely do that. So yeah, um, it's I'm a human being and I'm aware of the, the privilege that I have um, as an author. And I guess the final question when it comes to these events is how to present oneself, how to dress, um, and do I wear a costume? Because well, I'm presenting to teenagers mostly. I don't wear a costume because seriously, they will just roll their eyes and think I'm a try hard. So I, I, what I will do is wear something like small, like a, a bee brooch or hexagonal earrings or um, something that or something that's related to whatever book I'm talking about. And the teenagers really get that. They come up to me afterwards. Did you wear those hexagonal earrings because of hive? I'm like, yeah, well spotted. Um, and yeah, just always dress professionally. It's not corporate. I'm not wearing my teacher clothing when I'm presenting. So when I'm dressing for these um, public events, I'm not dressing as I would as a teacher or for a corporate position. It's just really an extension of myself. Um, maybe not my pajamas that I wear when I'm running at home, say, uh, but but just this is who I am and, and I think young people and, and the public in general I, I just appreciate seeing you as a human being. So I wouldn't get too caught up in how to dress yourself and, and, and certainly don't worry too much about um, dressing in costume but just be fun and, and have a little bit of um, interest factor. Well thanks for having me on your podcast um, yeah enjoy the rest of the conversation with Julia Lawrence and uh, I look forward to hearing the next one. Wonderful thank you so much Amanda I feel like I've gotten some really good advice that will help me and any other emerging writers. Julia because you're so experienced in this area what would you say for very new writers like myself who kind of, you know, want to do everything or um, feel like, oh, but, you know, they're promoting my book or, um, you know, that kind of thing, what, what would you tell us to kind of be strong and say, no, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not going to give a free talk? Like what advice would you give really new authors? Well, look, it, it, 
Okay, there's two different things. So if you want to develop your skills and you want to volunteer your time, that is an entirely different thing. So Mm. if you approach a local school going, can I test out some material with your year fives? That is fine. It's up to you. Mm. But if people are asked, you and again, unless it's that directly promotional things like, like you know bookshops, bookshops yeah. or um, or organisations that you're supporting, like the Children's Book Council or yeah. you know things yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah. That's um, that's a bit different. So developing your skills is one thing, but people want to hear from you because you have something to say, mm. and you need to value that mm. um, as as a writer. It's really important to value your work because it teaches other people to value your work too. Awesome. Thank you so much. Would you have anything else you can add that you think would help authors like me do the best author talks? Like what advice? Firstly, be prepared. So be absolutely sure about what you're saying. When I first started doing talks, I wrote everything out word for word because I um, had a hideous experience once where I got up to speak and I went, blank and I had Mm. nothing and it was excruciating. So I didn't want to repeat that. So Mm. I used to write things out word for word. I don't do that anymore. Um, So knowing what you're going to say. So to do that, you need to know who your audience is, how many people are there, Have do they do this thing all the time? Do you know, like what is it that they want to know? Um, The next thing is that also be prepared in the sense that if you've got a great PowerPoint, you need to be prepared in case the technology is not working yeah. um, or in case an extra 500 people turn up that you're not expecting or if you have three people instead of 500. So yeah. um, you, you you need to be prepared for all eventualities and to have some kind of alternate stuff yeah. um, in your head. Practising in front of a mirror, I know it sounds daft but yeah. that is the best way to practice what you're going to to say um practice in front of a small group of friends if they're mm. willing to to, to do that but you actually need to say words out loud to go oh that doesn't really work um and the 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 last thing i would suggest is don't eat cashews before you speak <laughs> okay, because that's very specific because um it doesn't matter how long before you talk that you eat cashews mm. but when you project your voice, you will also project bits of cashew over the front row. Okay. Yeah. I'm 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 sensing a, a an, an experience there. Yes. 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 So okay. um and, and they get stuck in your teeth, but but mainly you don't want to spit them out over people. So be prepared. Ditch those cashews. Yes. Awesome. Thank you so much. (laughs) All right. um, Now we're coming to the end of our chat. Before we have a reading from your book, I have one last question. In your acknowledgements, you thank a very impressive list of writers, um, as well as the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators. Writing is often considered to be a very kind of solitary, maybe even lonely profession. What part did other writers play in helping you develop Maddie in the Middle and how do you think we can become better writers through community? I think we're very lucky in Western Australia in that we have such a supportive writing community. Mm. Um, we're particularly close in the kind of kids' writing community but but yeah. all all writers, I think, because we all know each other, we all see each other at the same festivals yeah. um, and that sense of community is just so important because a writing career has highs and it has lows. It has um, times that are great and times that are difficult and it doesn't matter what point in your writing career, it's just the way it is. And we, uh, we, we rely on each other a lot to get us through those times where you're just like, why am I doing this? You know, whose idea was this? Yeah. Um, you know, or you've had a terrible gig or, you know, like whatever it is. And so it's a really, yeah, it's just a wonderful community to be a part of and to, to get support from when things are, are difficult. It took, it took me ages to write Maddie in the Middle. I was changing perspectives. I was changing you know, what was going on with the characters and it really, and I was like, I, I know, I feel like I've got something in here but I'm not mm. quite sure where to go. So actually workshopping that with other writers was um, was really essential 
to awesome. getting to the end and going, I'm, I, I think I can do it, I'm just not sure. But um, And we all do it with each other. It's, it's a really, really important part of the process. Awesome. Yeah, I've actually got a little um, group of writing friends. We call ourselves the Tugboats and, and without them I couldn't have finished my book. They, they really gave me a G up, made sure I was accountable and they read my work as well. Um, I'm curious, what do you think, what can authors do, like new emerging authors, if they actually don't have a support network, if they don't have community? Where can they find community? Uh, I'm, I'm sure there are communities online. Yep. I would say, but just go out and find it. There there are. Yeah. I mean, even people living in isolated areas can find that, you know, there's a lot of regional writing communities in Western Australia mm-hmm. um, and you just got to get out there. Yep. And it's scary. It's scary to meet new people, especially when you haven't had anything published yet. And it's like, oh, I'm, I want to write. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and and but through that process, you'll find people that you connect with. Awesome. Thank you so much. Um, I'd now love for you to read a, a part of Maddie in the Middle. We've spoken so much about the book. Let's hear some of it. So right. what are you reading today? I'm reading from the beginning. So it's um, it's the shoplifting scene. Ooh, what page is it in your um, book? It's whatever page one is. Oh. I, I've actually got a slightly edited version. Okay, no worries. Okay. So, Julia, take it away. Okay. I knew we were going to get caught this time. We weren't doing anything different to what we'd done before, but it felt different. Everything was brighter, as if someone had cranked up the lights. My skin prickled like I was standing in the sun. My palms were slippery with sweat. My heart was going da-dub, da-dub, da-dub in my throat. I was the kind of scared you are when you're six alone in the dark and afraid something is under the bed, waiting, waiting for you to poke so much as a toe over the side. If you do, gotcha. I wanted so badly to look over my shoulder, but Samara always said that was the worst thing you could do, apart from what we were doing. I was wearing jeans with a long sleeve shirt over my tank and Samara was wearing a jacket over her dress. We each had a bag with our purses in. Samara's didn't have much in hers except a few coins and a picture of her mum looking beautiful. Nobody else would carry carry around a picture of their mum like that, but Samara doesn't care. Samara never cares about little things like what other people think. It is one of the things I like most about her. We wandered towards the back of the store, casually looking this way and that, working out where the cameras were, and then we sauntered into the confectionery aisle. My heart beat even faster, and it seemed harder to take a breath. I knew without having to look exactly where the other shoppers were. I could tell if they were moving or standing still, looking at items on the shelves or pushing trolleys past them, or hissing at their children to put that back right this minute. I could tell whether people were looking at us or not. It surprised me that people didn't look at Samara much. At school, everybody was looking at her all the time. Everyone wanted to be around her, have her smile at them, have her laugh at something they did. In the shops, we were just a couple of 12-year-olds. You know what you need to get? Samara asked. Of course, I said. The chocolate bars slid easily enough up my sleeve. Like I always did, I picked up another, cheaper one, scanning the information label on the back and reading it aloud to Samara. Do you think this one has palm oil in it? I said. Those poor orangutans. That part wasn't an act. I really do care about palm oil because of Katie. Katie cares about orangutans, threatened bees and endangered frogs. It is one of the things I like most about her. How about this one? Samara held up another bar. This has nuts. Okay, I said, let's get both. Samara dropped her chocolate bar in my basket. She was so smooth I hadn't noticed her slip what she'd taken into her side pocket. It was an art being able to sneak stuff in a way that even if they were watching behind the camera, they wouldn't see. And then, without saying anything more, we glided off towards the checkout. I swung the basket onto the black conveyor belt. 
Hi, Samara said to the checkout guy. I dropped my basket on top of the others at the end of the conveyor belt. It made a hollow clunk as it fell. I felt a desperate urge to look behind me, but I knew I couldn't. I had to act completely normal, more normal than normal. Just these, the checkout guy said. His eyes were glazed and his jaw was studded with pink pimples. He barely even looked at Samara, keeping his eyes on the screen in front of him. He was her favourite kind of assistant. Samara would have spotted him on the way in. Yes, she nodded. She delivered a big smile, but he didn't smile back, almost as if he was embarrassed. I got out my bag and made a show of passing Samara coins. My hands were even sweatier now. Samara's palm was dry and warm. Oh, here, do you want to check our bags? Samara asked. We both opened our bags, unzipping them and holding them wide. The guy glanced in, then glanced away. Samara slid our shopping into her bag and swung it over her shoulder. Come on, she said. Coming, I replied. We walked away, our pace slow. I always fought the urge to run at this point, and today it was all I could do not to bolt to daylight, through the doors that hissed open and closed, out to space and air and freedom, out to where I could go back to being myself, Maddie, schoolgirl, dreamer of dreams, player of the clarinet, former member of the rule of two. A girl who would never take things from a shop without paying, no matter how good the reason was. I pressed down the panic and kept step in time with Samara, who was singing along with a song spilling out of the hair salon. Her voice was sweet and it calmed me down just a little. We were almost at the sliding doors when a woman in a black uniform stepped in front of us. Later, I could never work out where she came from. One minute she wasn't there, then she was, forcing us to stop, frowning at us, knowing everything. Girls, she said, I believe you have some items there that you haven't paid for. Gotcha. That was Julia Lawrenson reading from her book, Maddie in the Middle. You can find it at fremantlepress.com.au and all good bookstores. Julia, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Rebecca. If you enjoyed our chat today, subscribe to our podcast at iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud or wherever you get your podcasts. My name's Rebecca Higgy and I've been your host today. As the winner of the 2019 Fogarty Literary Award, I'll be talking to writers from all walks of life until my book, The History of Mischief, is released in September 2020. Join me next time for more insights into the world of words, writing and more. Don't forget, if you like today's podcast, then you can subscribe through iTunes, Google Play or where you get all your favourite podcasts online.